can a neglected Old Testament book tell us about the demise of Christianity's impact on societies in the West? Why is it important for us to study the book of Judges? How does the lack of effective male leadership impact society? Can we take any of this information and apply it to today? These questions are the basis for today's Differing Things. Now for our host, Bill Petrie. Hello, welcome to this edition of Differing Things. I am your host, Bill Petrie. If you enjoy Differing Things, please consider following us. I really would love to hear your thoughts. So please feel free to leave your comments. I definitely want to hear from you. In this particular episode of Differing Things, we're going to study the book of Judges. But it always helps to understand the context of a book before we study it. So first, I want to show you how Judges fits into the history of the nation of Israel. Genesis covers the fall of man, the birth of Israel's patriarchs, in the captivity in Egypt which began at the end of Genesis. The book of Exodus, the Israelites leave Egypt in the book of Exodus, and God gives the Ten Commandments. The book of Leviticus deals with the law in much more specific detail. In the book of Numbers, the Israelites are supposed to move into the promised land and take possession of it. But they are afraid because of the report of the 10 spies. They fail to trust God. So God sends them out into the wilderness until all grown-ups die, except for Joshua and Caleb. In the book of Deuteronomy, God brings them back to Mount Sinai and expounds his covenant with them and promises to bless them if they follow him and curse them if they do not follow him. In the book of Joshua, they begin the conquest of the land. Joshua leads them until he dies. And that is where the book of Judges begins, with the death of Joshua. It is important to understand that the people were unable to take total possession of the land under Joshua and even for years after his death. Judges chapter 1 verse 19 gives the Israelite perspective for why this was so. And Yahweh was with Judah, and he drove out the inhabitants of the mountain, but could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley, because they had chariots of iron. Most commentaries consider this is the reason the Israelites could not overcome the enemy. But we must ask ourselves, did chariots stop God from killing the Egyptians in the, in the Red Sea? The rest of chapter 1 and 2 give an account of how they failed 
to drive out the enemy. Judges chapter 2, verses 2 through 3, and verses 20 through 23, will give us God's perspective on their failure. Judges 2, verse 2 and 3 state, And all of you shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. All of you shall throw down their altars. But all of you have not obeyed my voice. Why have all of you done this? Wherefore, I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. Skipping down to verse 20, down through verse 23. And the anger of Yahweh was hot against Israel. And he said, because that this people has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and have not listened to my voice, I will not henceforth drive out any from before them of the nations, which Joshua left when he died, that through them I may prove Israel, whether they will keep the way of Yahweh to walk therein, as their fathers did keep it, or not. Therefore Yahweh left those nations without driving them out hastily, neither delivered he them into the hand of Joshua. Judges chapter 3 verses 5 through 7 sums up for us how the Israelites handled the test. It records, and the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, Hittites, and Amorites, and Perizzites, and Hivites, and Jebusites. And they took their daughters to be their wives, and gave their daughters to their sons, and served their gods. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of Yahweh, and forgotten about Yahweh their Elohim, and served Balaam in the groves. There is a very important principle God is trying to show us in these few verses. If you marry with non-believers, the day will come when you behave as a non-believer. So the book of Judges is all about the various tribes of Israel living among their enemies and being oppressed by one enemy after another. When things got really bad, Israel would cry to God for help, and God would rise up a judge who would lead a military campaign and defeat that particular enemy. A period of peace would last for a few years, and then the cycle would begin again. At this point, I'd like to refer you back to one of our previous episodes of Differing Things called The Cycles of History. I think that, coupled with this topic today, will really give you a complete picture of where Western society is headed, and in particular, the United States. So what we basically see in Judges is six of these cycles that I'm talking about. 
in each one, things get a little worse. And it would really be better to describe the cycles as a slow and steady downward spiral. Often we go to the Bible and look for theological propositions or do a character study on some individual like Elijah, Joseph, or Gideon and ignore the narrative sections or stories or, if you will, the history. But there is a lot to learn from the narrative parts of the Bible. Sometimes it can be very helpful to look at the Bible as a piece of literature and just not as a book of theological statements. It helps us to clarify the major points of a particular narrative. A useful literary device that we should continuously look for is the repetition of phrases. Judges has numerous repetitions of phrases. And another very important tool that authors use is character roles. An evaluation of the various characters and judges will point to something significant. The book of Judges demonstrates in a, in a negative manner the importance of competent leadership. Although God raised up several judges or leaders to accomplish military victories, many failed miserably in other respects. Despite their military success, the spiritual climate in Israel grew bitterly cold as violence and anarchy swept through their society. The book's final chapters include a sordid account of idolatry, gang rape, civil war, and kidnapping. The book concludes with the somber words, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. This set the stage for the rise of Samuel and David, through whom God restored some semblance of covenantal loyalty and societal order with Israel. You cannot read through the book of Judges without noticing that women appear at all the strategic points in the narrative. They assume a variety of roles, including heroine, seductress, innocent victim, and a few others. Their changing roles throughout the book contribute powerfully to the book's portrayal of the disintegration of Israelite society. The portrait culminates in 1 Samuel chapter 1 with the oppressed figure of Hannah, through whom the Lord will reverse the downward spiral detailed in Judges 
and bring to realization the leadership ideal presented at the beginning of the book. Today, this Differing Things episode will examine the interrelationship between the male and female characters in Judges and seek to explain how the changing function of the women characters provides a key to understanding the book's overall evaluation of Israel's male leadership during this time period, and how two of the women characters set the stage for the appearance of Hannah in a particularly pointed manner. I have divided the book into several sections. One thing that helped me divide the book was the repetition of the phrase, then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. We see it in Judges 3.17, before Othniel is introduced. In 3.12, before Ehud is introduced. In 4.1, before Deborah and Barak are introduced. In 6.1, before the account of Gideon. In 10.6, before Jephthah is introduced. In 13.1, before the story of Samson. It turns out that if you divide the book according to the roles of the women in the book, these divisions coincide fairly well with the introductory phrases Chapters 1 through 3, we could state, a warrior wins a wife, and a father blesses his daughter. In chapters 4 through 5, a courageous woman lures a foreign warrior to his death. In chapters 6 through 9, a woman delivers Israel from a power-hungry oppressor. In chapters 10 through 12, an Israelite warrior wins a battle but brings a curse upon his daughter. In chapter 13 through 16, a foreign woman lures an Israelite warrior to his death. In chapters 17 through 21, Israelite women are oppressed by their countrymen. <clears throat> Let's deal with that first section. A warrior wins a wife, and a father blesses his daughter. In the first part of chapter 1, we see that Joshua dies and the Israelites take control of a portion of the promised land. By the end of chapter 3, we are introduced to the exploits of Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. These three judges bravely deliver Israel from foreign oppressors. Though the accounts are brief, the author paints a picture of military effective men who display daring and courage. It is, in brief, a picture of what effective male leadership should look like. We are introduced to Othniel first in chapter 1, verse 13, when he takes part in the military campaign led by Caleb. In Judges 1, verse 13, Othniel is presented as a divinely empowered warrior who demonstrates military efficiency 
in an almost matter-of-fact way. When Caleb offered his daughter, Aksa, to the one who captures Kareth Safar in verse 13 simply states, Athniel captured it. Verse 14 probably says in your Bible that Aksa persuaded Athniel to ask her father for a field. But this is a bad translation of the Hebrew. The to him is not in the Hebrew. The Niv goes as far as to translate this as she came to Athniel. They took a lot of liberty with the text as they are wont to do. This is more properly translated as such than it came about when she came that she persuaded him, her father, by asking for a field. We are introduced to what is about to take place when we see the action. Then she alighted from her donkey and Caleb said to her, what do you want? I want to spend the time correcting the translation because I think it is important to understand that Othniel is no weak or greedy man asking his father-in-law for a handout. Instead, it is Aksa asking for a dowry from her father. It is here that I want to draw the information for the first main section, which emphasizes the warrior-like character of Athniel in the blessing of a father for his daughter. It might seem to us at first that Caleb is not treating his daughter very well when he offers her is the prize for bravery. But we need to recognize that Caleb's challenge to the soldiers would ensure that his daughter married a strong and brave man who would more than likely be the leader of the family and provide for her. I think we can also conclude that if this warrior took the city, it would be because he had faith in God. That was the only way the Israelites ever won a battle, faith in God. The chances were excellent that Caleb would be providing a man of God for his daughter. Isn't that what we as Christian fathers want for our daughters? We can conclude from this section that Caleb is going to find a good husband for his daughter. And again, should not this be the goal of all fathers in all societies everywhere? Caleb's gift to his daughter also illustrates the protective concern which fathers should display towards their wives and daughters. The reason I am pointing this out about Caleb is because later we will see a father who makes a similar promise, but with tragic consequences for his daughter. We will also see the men of Israel debauched 
debauched to the place where they are oppressing their own women and not taking care of them. Exxon is a role model of the maiden one by bravery in battle. This will contrast sharply with the role of women in the end of the book. We have a model warrior, a brave leader, and a woman who benefits from his leadership. I also want to point out that not much is written about Othniel, but this is normal if an author wants to portray a character as an ideal or model for others. The author does not want us to know everything about him, especially his mistakes or weaknesses. He is a role model. For the author of Judges, Othniel is a model of the ideal warrior who follows Joshua's directive, bravely defeats the enemy, and takes the land God has given his people. After reading about Othniel in chapter 1, we see that the Israelites did a very sorry job of ridding the land of their enemies. In chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, you will read of more of Othniel's exploits as he defeats Cushan, Rishathim, and again, we are not told much about him or how he did it. We are simply told that he delivered the nation. Unfortunately, no Israelite warrior would fully measure up to the ideal established by Othniel until David emerges hundreds of years later. Then we have Ehud in, chapters, in chapter 3, verses 12 through 30. In the story of Ehud, we have a brave and cunning warrior who tricks the enemy, and we read all the gory details. We might be repulsed by his actions, but to the Israelite audience, this would have been comical and inspirational. Ehud is another example of a brave warrior who trusts God. We see that from verse 28, and he defeats one of the enemies of the nation. In verse 31 of chapter 3, we come to Shamgar. Not much is said about Shamgar, so we cannot draw too many conclusions about him. But we can conclude that since he is associated with Othniel and Ehud, that he is to be viewed in a positive light. To summarize the book's first three chapters, while not entirely positive in their assessment of Israel's early history, they paint a somewhat ideal picture of heroic warriors and an Israelite woman who inspires great deeds and receives a blessing from her father. Our next sec section is that of a courageous woman lures a foreign warrior to his death. Judges chapter 4 and 5. 
The first thing we see in this section of Judges is that it is a woman who is leading Israel. This should raise a question among the readers of the book. Why is a woman leading? Things must really be bad. They were. There were no men brave enough to lead. We just need to look at Barak's response to Deborah's order in Judges 4.8. If you go with me, I will go. But if you will not go, I will not go. Does not this sound like some little child talking to his mother? Deborah's response in verse 9 shows that Barak's attitude was less than appropriate. Barak would not receive the honor for the victory, but a woman would. We see that Barak does defeat the enemy, but Sisera, the general, escapes and seeks shelter in the tent of an ally. Here, we are introduced to, to Jael. In spite of her husband's loyalty to Sisera, she is loyal to Israel. So she invites Sisera into her tent, gives him some milk, tucks him into bed because he is exhausted from fighting all day. And then, while he is sleeping, she drives a tent peg through his head. In chapter 5, we have a long song commemorating the event. In the song, special praise is given to Jael for defeating Sisera. This could have been sung in Barak's honor, had he not failed to act. We are also introduced to Sisera's mother, in chapter 5, verse 28, she is seen looking out the window, waiting for her son to return. She assumes his delay is because he has defeated the enemy. The irony is that he is being killed by a courageous woman. What do we learn from the story of Deborah and Barak? First, Barak enjoys success, but he does not display the courage of his predecessors. He demanded military support from a female leader. Second, we see that Deborah's words are fulfilled. A woman receives the honor from killing Sisera. Third, we see that the warrior ideal established in chapter, chapters 1 through 3 is carried on by a woman. J.L. is courageous. J.L. takes decisive action. J.L. J.L.'s exploits remind us of the crafty Ehud, the lone assassin who used deception to slay a foreign oppressor behind closed doors. Like Shamgar, she uses an unconventional weapon. He used an ox goid. She used a tent peg. And like Shamgar, 
she is a foreigner. By the end of this story, we see that Israel has taken a step backward in terms of male leadership. Fortunately, two strong females rose to the occasion to compensate for male weakness. The next section of the book of Judges, Judges chapters 6 through 9, I title, A Woman Delivers Israel from a Power-Hungry Oppressor. Here we have the story of Gideon. <clears throat> Most of us have heard about Gideon. He is best known for defeating the Midianites with only 300 men. But Gideon sends us mixed signals. He is full of doubts and fear. He questions and tests God throughout the narrative. The testing of God with the fleece is the most famous scene. But God has patience with him and uses him to destroy the enemy. This can offer encouragement and hope to us that God can use us in spite of our fears and doubts. But I want to look at Gideon from the perspective that we are studying in this episode of Differing Things, which is declining male leadership. Like Barak, Gideon is initially hesitant when called into action. Barak responded to Deborah by saying, if. Gideon responds with a big if. In 617, he also does this in 636. It is no wonder God says in Judges chapter 7, verse 10, if you are afraid to go down, go with Purah, your servant. He refuses to become king when the people ask him, which is a very positive thing. But he turns right around and makes a golden, golden ephod in chapter 8 and verse 27. An ephod was an apron that the high priest wore, and on it hung a pouch with the Urim and the Thummim, which were used to determine God's will. Gideon's ephod became an object used in the illegal practice of divination. It was an object of idolatrous worship. So he contributes to the spiritual decline of the nation. He has many wives and a concubine who give him 70 sons and another son named Abimelech. There is much contention in the family and Abimelech ends up killing all his brothers and declaring himself in charge. He, in fact, had no inheritance rights because his mother was a concubine. Abimelech went on to terrorize the countryside. 
At this point, the next important woman enters the story. When Abimelech was at the Bez, a woman threw a millstone down on his head in Judges 9, verse 53. The text emphasizes she did this by herself and that she threw the millstone. This suggests a heroic act of strength and casts the woman into the role of a warrior. In the account of Abimelech's death, a woman delivers Israel again, once more ironically, by a fatal blow to the head with an unconventional weapon. Compare this with chapter 5, verse 26, and chapter 9, verse 53. Only this time, the oppressor was an Israelite themselves. Things have seriously deteriorated when the bondage from which Israel has to be delivered is no longer a bondage to some foreign power, but a bondage to one of Israel's number, who instead of being a deliverer of Israel have installed himself as a tyrant and are maintaining his tyranny by ruthless destruction. Does this not sound like leadership in the Western world? It is clear that the role of the women has changed from one who inspires brave warriors to go into battle, to delivering Israel from the foreign oppressor, to delivering Israel from oppression from one of her own countrymen. We can see that the leadership is disintegrating. Athniel, Ehud, and Shamgar were brave and wise warriors. Barak was not so brave. Gideon was not so brave and not so wise. Now we will look at another leader who was not so brave and very foolish. I call this section Judges chapter 10 through chapter 12, an Israelite warrior wins a battle, but brings a curse upon his daughter. We have our introductory phrase in chapter 10, verse 6. And then we are introduced to Jephthah, beginning in 11.1. Immediately, we see that Jephthah is a valiant warrior but he was the son of a prostitute. He is like Abimelech in this regard. His half-brothers, the legitimate children, ran him off, and he began to associate with worthless fellows. But in learning to survive and fend for himself on the street, he became stronger by the process, and when things got really bad in the land, the elders asked him, and he agreed, to lead the nation. In chapter 11, in verse 29, we see that the Spirit of God came to help him. Jephthah was not as confident in God 
as he should have been. And he made a bargain with God, which was very rash. Like Barak and Gideon, he uses a big if. He uses that big if prior to the battle. The precise wording of the vow indicates that he intended to offer a human sacrifice and not an animal. But he expected it to be a male. We can deduce this because he uses the masculine form. In chapter 11, verses 30 and 31, we read, And Jephthah vowed a vow to Yahweh and said, If you shall without fail deliver the children of Ammon into mine hand, then whoever comes out from the door of my house meeting me when I come back in peace from the children of Ammon will be Yahweh's, and I will give him as a burnt offering. He only had one child, which was his daughter. So he probably was thinking of a male servant. The vow proved to be a rash and foolish one, because when he returned victorious, the first person he saw coming out of his house was his daughter. Whether he kept his vow and sacrificed her, or he just sent her to be to the temple for a life of service to God, has been debated by scholars for years. However, the text states in verse 39 that he did with her according to his vow, which he had vowed. And the tribute paid to his daughter every year is Judges 11, verse 40, seems much more appropriate if she was killed rather than still living. The statement that he did with her according to his vow leaves no doubt in my mind that Jephthah did sacrifice his daughter. Let's view him in contrast to Caleb, who brought blessing on his daughter. Jephthah's foolishness brought a curse on his daughter. Finally, in chapter 12, verse 4, we see Jephthah embroiled in a civil war against the Ephraimites. In contrast to Ehud, who took the fords of the Jordan against a Gentile army, Jephthah is fighting against fellow Israelites. Once again, the crisis in Israelite leadership is evident. The changing role of the story's major female character draws attention to this. Now a woman becomes the innocent victim of her own father's lack of faith and wisdom. Our next section, Judges chapter 13 through 16, a foreign woman lures an Israelite warrior to his death. 
we have the story of Samson. He appears to have the qualities necessary for a great leader. He is supernaturally conceived, which would indicate that God had a special purpose for him. Like Othniel, he was divinely empowered, fearless, and did not hesitate to attack the Lord's enemies. Like Ehud, he was cunning. We can see this through his love of riddles. And like Shamgar, he was able to slaughter hundreds, even with an unconventional weapon. His weapon of choice was the jawbone of a donkey. I think the significance of the conventional weapons throughout the book just emphasizes God was the one who brought the victory. However, we do not have to look very far to find his weakness. Women. He marries a, Timon, he marries a Timonite woman. It says that God sanctioned the marriage in chapter 14, verse 4. The problems arise for Samson after this. He becomes involved with a prostitute in Gaza. And another Philistine prostitute, Delilah, proves to be his downfall. There is some irony here. In 14.2, it says Samson saw a Timonite woman. In 16.1, it says he saw a harlot in Gaza. When he is captured by the Philistines, they put out his eyes so he will not be seeing any more women. Since we are looking at Judges as a story, we should recognize that in contrast to J.L., who lured a foreign general to his death, a foreign woman, Delilah, lures the greatest of Israel's warriors to his death. Samson is now in the role of Sisera. God allows Samson to avenge himself, but he indeed does die in the process. Samson's death in the Philistine temple makes the decline in Israel's leadership complete. Deficient faith has given way to lack of wisdom. No more individual leaders appear in the book. The final chapters describe a period of anarchy which surpasses the turmoil produced earlier by Abimelech. The last section of the book, chapters 17 through 21, describe Israelite women being oppressed by their countrymen. Without effective spiritual leadership, the people of Israel, like all humanity, with their propensity to rebel, fell away from Yahweh. Idolatry and civil war take over. The women in this section play prominent roles as innocent victims. In chapter 19, we see a Levite traveling with his concubine. Now get that picture in your head. A Levite with a concubine.
This Levite tra traveling with his concubine decides it would be safer to spend the night in Israelite territory than in Jebusite territory. He was wrong. It would have been far safer, safer for him to stay in Jebusite territory. A group of Israelite men come to the place he is staying to have sexual relations with him. The parallel to Sodom and Gomorrah should be obvious to the reader of this section in the book of Judges. Homosexuality is a deviancy that is scourging the land and destroys the morality of those impacted by it. Instead, he sends his concubine out to satisfy them, and they rape her all night and leave her to die. When the Levite asks the Benjamites to turn over the perpetrators, they refuse. So he cuts up the woman who has been raped to death into 12 parts and sends her parts to the 12 tribes of Israel and calls the other tribes to help him and a civil war breaks out. The Benjamites are almost wiped out of existence. The cities, women, and children are destroyed, and only 600 men escape. In order to ensure the tribe of Benjamin will not become extinct, the other tribes annihilate the town of Jabesh-Gilead, who would not take part in the civil war. They give 400 virgins to the 600 Benjamites and then send the other 200 Benjamites to Shiloh to kidnap 200 more women dancing in the vineyard during the harvest celebration. It is ironic and deplorable that the nation has stooped so low. Although the Israelites supposedly abhorred what the Benjamites did, to the Levites' concubine, they repeated on a mass scale the same crimes. Today in the Western worlds, we see such twisted logic. We see that where the logic has become an individual can't support themselves, so let's steal the money from those who have worked hard and diligently and earned it and give it to the sluggard. We see the acceptance of rampant homosexuality in that union, so much so that now we allow drag queens to have reading programs with our children where they can talk about sexually explicit materials that they are reading to the children and influencing their young minds. Today, we see God eradicated from the schools and secularism running amok. Yes, Israel's moral decline is complete by the time we hit the end of Judges, just as the Western world's moral decline is rapid and swift, 
quickly approaching the point of no return if we have not already hit that. Women in the beginning of the book of Judges inspired men to great deeds. When they played the role of national deliverers, first from external oppressors and then from internal oppressors. Now, by the end of the book, they are being raped, kidnapped, and slaughtered by their own countrymen. Compare the end of the story with the story of Sisera. In the beginning, the threat to the woman was from outside the land. It was Sisera's men who would have raped the women if they had won the battle. But now we see that the decline in male leadership is so bad that Israelite men are oppressing their own women. How does all this apply to us? First, we are to have faith in God and the initiative to step out in faith and take action. Remember Othniel, who did have faith, in contrast to Gideon and Barak, who did not. Second, we have also seen that God was able to use men who did not have very much faith. Gideon is an example. Third, one person can make a difference. The Bible is big on community. But there are times when God uses individuals to accomplish his will. And last, the issue of male leadership is the main point of the book. The decline of male leadership. We are seeing such a decline in the Western world. Our male leaders have become soft and weak, indecisive, and afraid to act. Thank goodness some of the Western world has had a few women leaders who could fill in that void. I think of an individual such as a Margaret Thatcher. People often turn to the book of Judges to prove that it is okay for women to lead. But I think you can see from these stories that the men were weak and not doing what they were supposed to do. Deborah, J.L., and the women who killed Abimelech were great. I find no fault with them. But what we have seen shows this society is actually in decline. When the opportunities for women to lead arise, it is actually a sign that something is wrong. God's perfect design is for men to lead and women to receive the benefits of effective male leadership. When the society is in decline, God does and will sanction women into leadership, and he approves of that leadership. Somebody must lead. The women 
often will hold back the inevitable, the inevitable decline and erosion and corruption for a while. This allows the possibility of male leadership to arise again and restore God's intended design. But as I have said earlier, God's perfect design is for the men to lead and the women to receive the benefits of effective male leadership. This began with Adam. He, doesn't, he was not leading when he ate the fruit. He was following Eve's lead. I know most of you have heard the explanation of Genesis 3.16, which says the woman's desire would be to rule over her husband, but that God wanted the man to lead. It is man's natural inclination to back down and not take the initiative. God has made us this way so that the only way we can succeed as leaders is by stepping out in faith and trusting him to catch us when we fall or fail. And we will fail. We will make bad decisions. That is why we do not take the lead and why we are oftentimes afraid. When men fail to take the lead, women usually step right in and do it. They often do a fantastic job. But this is not God's ideal, although he does approve of them taking this lead in the lack of male leadership. One of the main points of the book is that men need to take the initiative and be leaders. One of the signs of a declining society is that lack of male leadership. Men need to have faith in God, and they need to live wisely. If they do not lead, the women will likely step in, and they will do a good job. But they will not be able to stem the tide of the decline, and eventually, society will fall apart and rapidly decline, so much so that they will become victims to all kinds of atrocities. This is a pattern that history bears out. All of history buff needs to do is to look at the history of Western civilization. Does this sound anything like our society today? The United States has seen a decline in effective male leadership and a rapid rise of women as leaders. We have seen the American society decline in morality we have seen an increase in violent acts against women. And we are beginning to see twisted morality that makes these things okay. Judges is not a pretty book. But Judges was placed in the Bible for a purpose. Judges 
shows just how bad things become in Israel before David. We can look at we can look at that history and just see the rapid decline of the nation. While we have been tracing the decline of Israelite society through the role of women, the author of Judges has also begun to weave another theme into the story that he wants to bring out for his readers. The clue to this new theme is a different phrase which he repeats at the beginning of each section. This phrase is this. Now there was a certain man from. It literally is, there was a certain man from. This phrase is found in the Bible only twice in Judges, once in Ruth and a couple of times in First and Second Samuel. This is a very good clue that Samuel wrote Judges in Ruth also. There are two women that we didn't deal with in our earlier survey. Samson's mother and Micah's mother. They didn't fit into the early, earlier scenario, but they do play an important role in the unfolding of the other theme. These ladies serve as foils in the story in preparation for Hannah and her son. Judges 13.2 states, There was a certain man of Zorah, and his wife was barren. And the angel of the Lord appeared to her and said she would have a son whom she would dedicate to the Lord's service. And she had Samson. As we have already seen, Samson was a great fighter, but not much of a leader. His life was a tragedy. So Samson's mother is a contrast to Hannah, who appears in 1 Samuel. Judges 17.1 says, Now there was a man of the hill country. We are introduced to the other mother. Micah's mother was also a foil for Hannah. When her son admitted that he stole the 1,100 shekels of silver from her, she blessed him when she should have rebuked him. When he returned the money, she consecrated it to the Lord and commissioned her son to have a carved image and a cast idol made from a portion of the silver. This idol ended up being used by the Danites to establish a religious cult at Shiloh. You can read this in chapter 18 of Judges, verses 30 and 31. Again, we see that this character's life led to evil conditions in the land. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1 says, Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem went to Moab. This is a similar phrase to the ones used in Judges. And the author is about to introduce Ruth, the heroine of this story. Again, we have a woman as the prominent character. Ruth stands out like a bright light in the midst of the darkness of the period of the judges. She is a model of faithfulness, loyalty, and love, which is God's ideal. But we see that it is a foreign woman who fulfills the ideal and not 
one of God's own people. Then we come to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 1.1 1, 1 says, Now there was a certain man from Ramathim Zophim. Here, Hannah is introduced. She is barren, like Samson's mother. She prays to God for a child and makes a vow that she will dedicate her son to God's service. We see that she promises that a razor shall never come to his head. The introductory phrase, now there was a certain man, should have reminded a reader that this was related to the story of Samson. This vow about long hair should certainly remind us of Samson's story. God hears her. Samuel is born, and she does dedicate him to the Lord, to Yahweh. God uses Samuel to raise up a king for the nation in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 17. If you remember the final comment in Judges, it was this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. God changes that in 1 Samuel. There is another literary clue that the book of Judges is preparing for us, King David. So it is clear to me that the same author has written Judges, Ruth, and Samuel. In Judges, he shows the decline of the nation. In Ruth, he shows that it is a foreign woman who carries on the ideal of God's loyal love. And in 1 Samuel, he shows the rise of the nation back to greatness through the leadership of David. The story of David and Goliath should remind us of the earlier judges, Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. Does not David use an unconventional weapon in the battle against the giant Goliath? I am amazed at the continuity between the books of Judges, Ruth, and Sam, both Samuel books, and the skill which the author used to tie them together. But we should not just be amazed at the story. Men should be convicted of their responsibility to trust God and lead. If you have enjoyed this Differing Things podcast, won't you please consider following us and leaving us a comment as to your thoughts? Good day and God bless. We want to thank you for listening to this week's Differing Things podcast. If you would like to get more information about the Bible, please check out our website, www.beacon-ministries.org. Do not forget to join us next week for a new Differing Things podcast.